If you're tired of dieting and stepping on the scale, you're lacking energy and confidence, and you're ready to harness your inner athlete, then you're in the right place. I'm Sherry Shaban, and in each episode, I'll help you to rebuild your fitness identity and empower your deepest transformation so that health and fitness are not just what you do, but who you are. What's up, athletes? Welcome back to the show. On November 2nd, 2006, Jeffrey Deskovic's indictment charging him with murder, rape, and possession of a weapon was dismissed on the grounds of actual innocence. Post-conviction DNA testing both proved Deskovic's innocence and identified the real perpetrator of a 1989 murder and rape. After his exoneration and release, Deskovic successfully sued the authorities responsible and used a substantial portion of the compensation he was awarded to start the Deskovic Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the exoneration of the wrongfully convicted, their recovery, and reform of the system that allows these miscarriages of justice to take place. Jeffrey has dedicated himself to helping the wrongfully convicted and recently graduated from the Elizabeth House School of Law at Pace University with a law degree. The foundation has freed seven people and currently has 11 active cases in addition to proving peripheral assistance in other cases. Today on the show, Jeff shares with us his story and how he shifted towards healing and recovery. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today, and especially because this is definitely a story that I really haven't heard before. So you you have the Deskovic Foundation, and that's sort of based on your life stories, something that happened to you. And from what I understand, you help others through wrongful conviction. Is that correct? Yes, that's yeah, that's correct. We we help free people who are wrongfully convicted, and we also pursue policy changes aimed at preventing that in the first place. All right, so you've had a similar story where you were wrongfully convicted. Yeah, th yeah that's exactly right. Uh, so I spent 16 years in prison. I was arrested when I was 16 for a murder and rape that I did not commit, uh, and then uh, I turned 17. I turned 17 by the time the uh, the, the trial was um, by the time the trial um, started, and I lost. Though so I was um, uh, conviction was based on coerced false confession, prosecutorial misconduct, fraud by the medical examiner, uh, terrible public uh, defender, and I was given a 15 year life sentence. Ultimately, I served 16 years prior to being exonerated through DNA testing, which I then you know which exonerated me and also identified the actual perpetrator. So you were answer. you were in jail for sixteen years. Yeah, that's right. Wow. And so, how did how did they find the evidence? How did that come out after sixteen years? Well, the DNA data bank was created. So, I mean, the DNA already didn't match me before the trial. The difference was that there was no data bank, and so we took that crime scene DNA evidence and we put it into the data bank, and it matched the actual perpetrator whose DNA was there because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed the second victim uh, three and a half years later uh, was uh, after killing the victim in my case, who had, a, who had a, I was a school teacher and had two children. Wow, wow. So how did you find yourself being convicted of that crime? How were you put in that situation? Well, I got on the police radar be because the police interviewed students from the high school and some of them told the police that they might 
want to speak with me because I was quiet into myself. And then secondly, I was uh, I was a sensitive teenager and I had an emotional reaction to his classmate being killed. This was really my first brush with death. And the police thought my being emotional was uh, was was some sort of outward sign that I was sorry for what I had done. And then they had a psychological profile which purported to have the characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that. So that was how I got on the police radar. In terms of how they were able to arrest me, they were able to, they, uh, were able to coerce a false confession out of me uh, following um, six and a half to seven hours of interrogation. Uh, and then in terms, so I'm not sure if you want me to give you any of the details on that or just leave it as that. Well, it's it's really your your story to share. I, I think what I find the most the most fascinating really is that y your story of resilience. You came out of jail, and I could just imagine how much anger that you you must be carrying. But you funneled that into developing yourself, and you decided to go into law school and become a lawyer yourself. Correct? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. So I was angry the first week that I came home, but I realized that look, this is destroying me. So. You know, uh, I have to, uh, I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. And I can't do that if I'm angry or bitter. Uh, it, it's, uh, I feel like I've lost so much already as it is. Why would I want to, in effect, lose the rest of my life by being angry? And if I was to be angry, it's not like I would be adversely affecting anybody. I mean, I would really be the only loser in that scenario. And so I took that energy that I, that I uh, uh felt and I channeled into the advocacy work and hence becoming an advocate. You know, I was an individual advocate for about the first five years. Uh, I was speaking across the country. I was a weekly columnist. I was regularly doing media interviews. I was regularly meeting with elected officials. I picked up, a, I got a scholarship to finish the bachelor's degree. I got a master's degree. Uh, my thesis is on wrongful conviction cause and reform. After about five years, I got compensated and I used some of the money to start the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which we've been able to get 11 people home and uh, help pass an additional three laws. And then um, as an advisory board member of a bigger coalition group called It Could Happen to You, we were able to pass an additional five laws. So that would be eight in total. We're doing policy work in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. And at some point, it became not enough for me to sit in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table. I wanted to represent some of the clients and make some of the arguments, hence going to law school and becoming an attorney. That's incredible. That's incredible. Most people would just stay as the victim of circumstance, right? And and find a way to get back at the system or to get back. But you, you're doing so much good with that energy that was definitely trapped inside you for so long. That's really incredible. That's really incredible. Well, I, I make sense of everything that happened to me, you know, in, in that, you know, I, I've, my mission in the world, my purpose in the world is, you know, is to do this work. And so I really look at what happened to me as kind of like a prep for, uh, for that. And it allows me to, it allows me to get some meaning and uh, my suffering counts for something. It's healing. It helps to make the world a little bit better. And I feel I feel a sense of inner peace as a result of that. Wow, that's so beautiful. So what was your life like coming out of jail, being in being in prison for 16 years and then coming back to to normal life? You were you were just a teenager, I think, going into jail. Right. right? So what, what I was transition like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember, yeah, I was 16 when I was arrested and I turned 17 by the time the trial started and I was in from 17 to 32. So yes, you're correct. I was a teenager uh, when I went in. So in terms of what it was like to come back out, I mean, the world was much different. 
cell phones, GPS, internet hadn't been created. Culture was different. Cities and towns looked different and different people lived in those neighborhoods. So cumulatively, it felt like I was in a parallel world that I didn't uh, belong uh, belong in. It was awkward when I would meet up with my extended family because the overwhelming majority of them never came to see me while I was incarcerated. So I was a different person now and so were they. And so, you know, knowing who they were, but not really understanding who they were, it was something to overcome. There was the normal psychological fallout from being wrongfully imprisoned. It's typical that people would have post-traumatic stress disorder, panic attacks, anxiety, feeling of processing things at a slower speed, feeling of having been frozen in time. There was stigma, of course. I was in prison for 16 years wrongfully, but I was still there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Was it safe to be alone someplace with you, with me? So it was, it definitely was an obstacle to overcome with respect to uh, personal uh, relationships. I was released with nothing. It took five years to get compensated. I was always passed over for gainful employment. And so I did lack stability of housing uh, initially. At one point, I was a couple of weeks away from being in a homeless shelter. But as I mentioned to you, simultaneous to that, I was doing the advocacy work and, you know, and I did get the scholarship for Mercy College to finish the bachelor's because I was two years short of that by the time funding was cut for college education for prisoners. And then they allowed me to live on campus as well when I lost the temporary housing. So I avoided the shelter that way. And I did get the master's and I got the law degree. Uh, but the other thing I'll mention to you, which I think rounds out my answer to your question, is that was particularly difficult for me uh, because I was in from 17 to 32. So there's a lot of growth and development and rites of passage that happened at that age. Uh, so I had never before uh, lived on my own. I never had went shopping. I hadn't had a driver's license. I never had written a check. I never had to balance a budget. Mm -hmm. So all those things were uh, different uh, for me. I mean, you know, I missed uh, graduating high school, the high school prom, finishing college education at a more traditional age, being well into a career, possibly having a family, possibly being on the way to, uh, you know, uh, financial freedom. So, the, you know, the loss was really tremendous. It's incalculable. At the same time, I don't have the option of going backwards. I can only impact today and, and, and tomorrow. So why not just, you know, maximize everything and just do the best that I can and you know, it, uh, again, I do have that sense of inner peace through it, through doing it. Wow. I love that so much, right? We, we suffer so much by trying to change what has happened. And especially when we had absolutely no control over, I love this mindset. It's so powerful. And anyone listening right now, I, I hope that if there's anything that you take from this, it's, it's really, that is to focus on today. What can I do today? And how can I brighten my future? Because I can't go back and change that past. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, speaking of that, I always like to share a tip with the uh, with, with the audience or whatever show. Uh, so in terms of overcoming adversity, I mean, set a goal, have a realistic plan. You should be able to look at it three or four different ways and see how it could possibly work. Be flexible. Remember that the goal is the goal. The plan's not the goal. So if an unexpected door opens for you that moves you closer to that goal, then you should take it, even if it's not part of your original plan. Uh, no excuses. So there's no reasons why you can't accomplish something. There's only reasons why something might be more difficult. Uh, don't be afraid of hard work and never quit. And when you're about to quit, then, you know, just say to yourself, look, this might be the key moment right here where I'm on the verge of a breakthrough. But because I quit, 
you know, it's not going to happen. So even though I can't go on anymore, I'm going to do so anyway, just to see what happens on the other side. And when you get there, you have to, you should reach back for people in the same position you were in and do some work on the preventative side. I know. And uh, again, it'll make your suffering count for something. You'll have some healing, some, you know, it'll be, uh, you get feel some catharsis as well. And you help make the world better. And and I know that that message is universal. It goes well beyond uh, wrongful imprisonment. I mean, I could, I could see that applying to say somebody who has experienced uh, racism or discrimination or you know, domestic abuse survivor or survived being a sexual assault or someone homeless or another person who has well, had one kind of debilitating illness or another and anything else, you just pl plug it in and, and it really it applies to that. Wow, I love that so much. And it's so true. If you want to make that count, then then find a way to contribute, find a way to give back and help others. And, you know, again, a, a very common theme that comes up in my podcast, and I, I'm sure for many people working in, in around personal development is things happens for us and not to us, right? And if we can finally see that, like, where what's the good about this, right? What's great about this? Why did this happen to me? It happened for a purpose. And as soon as I understand this purpose and share it with others and help others, then that was it. That's where we find that inner peace. Yeah, 100%. I definitely agree with that. And that's really what I've done. Yeah, so amazing. So what do you what do you do coming out of that environment that 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 experience that happened to you? What do you do with that all that emotion? Well, again, I think I channeled it into the advocacy work that I that I that I that I did. But then also I just want to emphasize that in terms of dealing with the psychological after effects. I mean, I did go to see mental health professionals, you know, four times a week for 6 years, so to the extent that someone's watching and they may uh, be hesitating to do that, you know, questioning, will it really help, its validity, worried about the social stigma that may attach to you, I would say, go ahead and do it. And you know, I was initially resistant myself, but once I, uh, once I tried it out, I mean, it started to work for me. And looking back, I think it's one of the best things I really ever did for me. Right, right. So we, you shared with me when we connected offline that you, you know, being in, in prison, you're eating a certain way. And of course, you're eating whatever was available to you. And when you were released, being exposed to to just regular food, real food, it triggered a lot of sort of that emotional attachments and and finding a way to funnel that emotion through food. Can you share that experience with us? Yeah, absolutely. So the food in prison is was terrible. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes it was uh, not fully cooked. Other times it was bur it was burned. Uh, it was certainly bland in, in, in general, although there were some halfway decent meals here and there. Uh, so the food wasn't all that healthy. I mean, we, we were able to make food in our cell, but, you know, I ate a lot of oodles and oodles and oodles, you know, ramen noodles, which is not not very healthy for you. And when I would cook something other than that, I mean, rice was like a big staple. So I would eat that a lot. So all this carb overdose of between the oodles and noodles, the rice and the terrible food and the mess also, that was a whole lot of bad eating for 16 years. Then when I was released, you know, suddenly everything out here is good in general and there is no portion control. So I was eating, you know, fourths and fifths and having dessert on top of that, while at the same time, I didn't have the same outlet for exercise. I mean, while I was incarcerated, there was a, a group of people that we would just get together and play basketball or play ping pong. And, you know, there's a, it's a lot of activity and, and 
you know, you're running and you're burning, burning calories, but I didn't, I didn't have that on the outside. And I was combining that with this eating in the way that I, that I mentioned to you. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, you know, I'm also an emotional eater also. So if I'm uh, stressed out about something or there's some big task in front of me that I start to feel uh, nervous about, all those things will result in me uh, eating. Uh, so as a result of that, I wound up gaining a lot of, when I came out of prison, I was maybe 190 pounds. And at my most, I ballooned to maybe like 275 approximately, you know, and uh, ultimately I, I had to, uh, I had to have a weight loss uh, surgery. I mean, it took 80% of my stomach out because the problem was the eating I did outside combined with the way I ate while I was on the inside, you know, I developed a fatty liver and the only way to, uh, correct the fatty liver is to lose weight. And until you lose that weight, there is a 30% chance of getting liver cancer. And if that happens, you know, you're typically gone, you're typically going to die within a month. So I tried a lot of different things over the course of uh, uh, two and a half years. I tried various diets. I had personal trainers. I tried to exercise, but, you know, none of that worked for me. And so ultimately after two months in a row of gaining even more weight, after trying a lot of things over um, two and a half years, I finally had to bite the bullet and and do the weight loss surgery. And I've you know I've lost a lot of weight since then. I've lost about fifty pounds, which you know would have been a really long time to uh, to lose. But having said that, uh, you know keeping the weight off and being healthy going forward. I mean, it's you have to change your lifestyle. You have to change your habits. So from that means for me, I you know I, I have I have to eat small portions. I have to eat five, six times a day, a small amount, but I also have to eat clean. I'm not supposed to eat carbs. You know, for example, I'm not supposed to eat junk food. And, uh, you know, if I do it anyway, then I'm harming myself. And ultimately I could, I could wind up stretching my stomach back out, which means I, you know, the surgery I did basically was for nothing and I could gain weight again. So I lose the aesthetics of it, but most importantly, I compromise my health. So I had, you know, uh, so I have to, uh, you have, I had to change my uh, eating habits. Uh, so when it comes to ice pops that have a very low amount of sugar, you know, uh, I'm allowed to eat unlimited ice pops as the doctor told me. So when I feel like emotionally eating, I do that. I binge on those, or I might have a salad and, and have, uh, you know, either a low fat salad dressing or a really small amount, or even make something up with uh, lemon juice and, uh, uh, like onions and garlic, but eat something healthy. You don't want to eat the salad and then have some high in fat salad dressing. You're not really doing that much then. But the point is, rather than just trying to suppress things, I, I kind of give in, but in a healthy way. I have a healthy outlet uh, to that. Right. But I think that another aspect of it just is the social support. So, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I I educate the people around me. Then my, you know, my primary and secondary relationships, people that I'm with on a more of a regular basis. Look, this is what my challenge has been. This is why I did the surgery. Here's how I'm supposed to eat. So I really need you to support me by not encouraging me to eat this just once or just for this special occasion or eating things around me that I'm not supposed to have. You know, I ask them to support me and, you know, to eat in a healthy manner while, while, they, while they're with me because, I, you know, I don't it would not take very much for me to just 
cave in and eat something. And uh, I'm really not a person that can eat just a small, if I eat just one chip or just a couple of French fries, then I've woken up the palate and now I'm completely off the wagon and, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, binging, and, I'm, and I'm binging and I'm going to feel really bad later on, but the damage will be done. So right. I, so I try not to make any exceptions and I try to utilize the social aspect of it by telling people, you know, what my, what my challenges and needs are and Look, the people that really care about me are really going to support me. And the people that can't, I need to minimize the times that I'm with them. They really don't have my best interests at heart. So if I'm going to be with them anyway, I have to have at least, well, I have to have at least one person with me that's solidly in my corner just to offset any, any kind of temptation or anything, you know? Right. So that's really how I look at it. Right. You said so many important points here, Jeff. Like, first of all, the fact that you had the, the gastric bypass and before you made that decision, you tried many methods. And the other thing too is this huge misconception that we have that, oh, I can have a gastric bypass and then eat whatever I want and I don't have to work on my health and fitness. And no, it's it's actually not the case. It's, it is a tool that we can use if, if it comes to that. And, and there's, you know, there's a lot of indication to have that obviously as well in, in your scenario, but the fact that even after that you're still very mindful of what you eat is super important and you i know you you exercise and you're you're sort of watching your nutrition and focusing on that but then letting everyone around you know how to support you is super key because at the end of the day it's it's almost like a drug right it's it's another addiction yeah, it really that we is. have and if if i'm if i'm addicted to something and i i'm you know trying to to sober up and i need to let people around me know so that when i am in that environment it's it's not that you know one french fry that you know i can i can take or pass it actually triggers that cascade of binge eating and then backing onto that pattern so 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 important to really have everyone around you know what you're up to and have that support at all times so another tip i'd throw in is you know out of sight out of mind so i don't i don't bring cookies and junk food into my house to have it around to offer other people because right. i'm going to end up eating it all myself right so you know that's uh you know that's really that's really important as well yeah, I'm the same way too. And you know, I'm I that's that's my life. It's it's health and fitness. But of course, if I have something in my pantry, something that I like, I'm I'm a I'm not a big chips person, I'm not a salt person, but I'm a I'm definitely a sweet tooth. And if I have that in my fridge, if I have that in my pantry, it calls to me until I have it, right? So why have it? And what we do in, in my family is every time we're wanting a dessert, 90% of the time we make our own using our own wholesome ingredients. Or if we are going to go to the grocery store to pick something up, we make it an active event. So we either walk there or we cycle there and then pick that something up. But it's so key. If it's if it's in your physical environment, you are going to have it. I mean, why why do that to yourself, right? It's it's so much mental strength to try to avoid it, but not having it at all is, is really off the mind. You're right yeah so speaking of walking and cycling uh that brings me to my next point which is uh in terms of uh exercising which is really a, a big part as well i think that it's uh, i think it's important to find something you enjoy so like for me i like to get my exercise in the course of doing something that's fun something that i enjoy and that's you know really why exercising on my own or even working with personal trainers really uh, didn't work because i i don't like doing straight calisthenics and the idea of doing something i don't like forcing myself to do something i don't like with no end in sight 
you know, that that that's really not a sustainable model. So it's better to try to find find something, just identify something you already enjoy or try different activities. And maybe you'll you'll discover something that you do and uh, enjoy but finding finding a way to do something that burns energy that that's uh, that's that's active that you actually enjoy doing and then you know then then you you know not then it's not really uh, exercising it's a lot easier to it's a lot easier to do it and then picking a time picking picking a time i mean i always like i i like i ride i ride a bike so i like to ride early in the morning because if i do it in the evening then i've kind of tied my whole evening down i can't do anything else if i try to do it in the daytime then again i'm limited what i can do before that you know, and then after that, so I try to like tuck it at the beginning of the day so that after I'm done, the rest of my day can unfold in the normal way that it would if I was, if I was uh, not exercising. And so I think that it's worth it to make the sacrifice and get up a little bit early, earlier in order to, you know, make the schedule work. Yeah, great tips. I love that. This is also what I share as well with, with my athletes is, yes, you have to find the pleasure in what you're doing. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. I'm sure you can be on your bike for a while and it gets uncomfortable, but it still becomes this activity that you enjoy. However, when we punish ourselves through exercise and we force ourselves and it really does feel like torture, there's no way that it can be sustainable like you mentioned. So definitely finding that activity by trying so many different things is really, really key. And understanding also, well, why am I doing this? What is this workout doing for me? Or, you know, we also just have this this intuitive sort of nature within us that we respect our bodies. We show up to our workouts and we respect ourselves how we show up for that day. So it doesn't have to be intense all the time. It's just really about honoring your body and doing what you can for that day that also keeps it sustainable long term. Super key. So maybe to give another to give another trip, if you, you know, try to maintain your habits, even if you go on vacation. So you don't want to come back from the vacation and you've set yourself back two, three weeks, a month, several months. I mean, it's very hard to lose weight and get in shape. And then once you do, you don't want to just give it all back just as like some short term thing. And wherever you're going, I mean, you're pretty sure, you know, your, your exercise can travel with you. Yes. You know, it's again, just keeping keeping the, the habit, you know, early in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the day, it works for me. But yeah, I agree. It works for me too. I find whenever I push my training later and later, later on in the day, more things come up and I'm tired by the end of the day. I'm an early bird. I start my day early. I'm up usually before five. And so if I start pushing off my training to the end of the day, well, I either have to do something for my kids or something comes up at work that I have to address. Right. And then I, I, the, 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 sort of likelihood of committing to that workout gets less and less and less as the day passes. So I love that. And same thing when when I travel, I bring my yoga mat with me everywhere and it's that routine in the morning. I wake up, I have my cup of coffee, everyone's probably still asleep, I do my workout and then I have the rest of the day to enjoy. And even if that workout was five minutes in the morning, like you said, it's that habit. And it's, it's breaking that habit and then trying to come back to it and reestablish it, that's so hard to do over and over and over again so many times, but it's consistency, right? Consistency first, then intensity. Absolutely, sure. So it was so nice to speak with you today, Jeff. Are there any final words that you wanna share with us? Well, yeah, I just, well, I, I'm a dream chaser, so I, I, I believe in that. So I just wanted to share, I think that it's better to chase a dream and do everything you can to 
turn that into reality. And it's better to do that, even if you ultimately come up short, I still think you won because you tried it and, and you're not you know, you're not going to be wondering like, you know, what, what would have, what would have happened. So I think that's better than uh, just playing it, uh, than just playing it safe. Maybe the other thing I'll say is uh, I really appreciate small things. So I like feeling the sun on my face. I like fresh air. I like the freedom of movement. I like to be outside and go for a little, get a little bit of fresh air in the, in the evening. Uh, so maybe appreciate the small things and try new things. So I like, I like trying new I know I like having new experiences, trying new activities, trying new food, going to new places, you know, travel if you can. And so I would I would encourage people just to true try things. And I, I don't like all the things that I try. Majority of things that are new I do, but sometimes I don't. But you know what? I'm not I'm not wondering anymore. And I feel like my life is so much richer when I find something new that that uh that that i do like so i would encourage people really to to try new to try new things in all those different ways i expressed such beautiful advice 100 percent. be curious try things and you know i tell my kids this too always ask don't be afraid to ask like what, what's the worst case scenario someone says no and then you don't do that thing but what's the best case scenario right they say yes, yes and then you have an opportunity right so don't be afraid to fail if we don't ask then we like you said we will always wonder well, what if right what did it take the worst case scenario is it's a no which you know didn't change anything anyway right so yeah it's exactly yeah that's that's exactly yeah that that's that's exactly right you know and the mind body are definitely definitely connected i mean i know i feel i feel better after i do do some sort of exercise you know, and so, you know, that, that helps clear my head. And sometimes the other way around also works, you know, when I have clarity, then I'm, it's easier to just go to go and, you know, and do some sort of exercise. But again, I'm not even thinking of it as exercise. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go ride a bike or I'm, and I'm going to go play racquetball. I'm going to go have some fun, play some ping pong. I think of it that way. I think how we frame the issue in our own mind has, is, 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 is really big. Yeah, that's so right. So right. So what's next for you, Jeff? What are your what are your plans with your foundation or your plans with your future and the message that you want to share with the world to overcome adversity and not look at the past and, and just resolve that anger through helping others? Well, just that, just what you mentioned. I mean, mm -hmm. that would be the big message to, to people. But I think in terms of what's next, you know, I have entered into some of the so I as an attorney I have entered into some of the uh, cases that the you know some of the uh, case the ten cases the foundation has been working on I've entered as co-counsel in some of them you know in pursuit of the dream of exonerating others as an attorney and I'm looking forward to helping to pass a few more laws in New York and in Pennsylvania and California ultimately I do want to have a chapter of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation in uh, each state and ultimately each country because I really see wrongful conviction as a worldwide issue, not uh, an American issue per se. And countries where we don't hear about wrongful convictions, it's not because they're not happening. It's because no one's being exonerated. No one's working on it. The injustices aren't aren't being aren't being corrected. So if the audiences liked what they seen, uh, saw this morning, uh, definitely they should check out the uh, a documentary short about me on Amazon Prime uh, called Conviction. Uh, there is, uh, the foundation does have a uh, crowdfunding site on the Patreon website. Uh, 
Patreon and Duskovic Foundation. I mean, imagine if 25,000 people, for example, were willing to uh, sacrifice three to five dollars a month on a recurring monthly basis in order to free wrongfully convicted people. You know, that, that would increase the number of cases that we were able to work on. We could push policy changes in more than just uh, the three states that we're working on. So I hope that people will consider to do that and to uh, share that, whether it's word of mouth, social media, or or other ways, because we'll be able to expand as our public support uh, allows us to. And you know, this really isn't about me anymore. I've been exonerated. I've been home for 14 years, and you know, I, I doubt very seriously I'll ever find myself in that situation again. So it's really about the people that are still in that uh, in, in in that situation. And you know, I'm just a tool in a struggle. And for me, that's really an important key. You know, just my head being the right size and uh, my feet being firmly on the floor, you know, so. Wow, so beautiful. So if somebody wanted to reach out to you to learn more about you or your foundation, where can they go to do that? Definitely the website, www.deskovic.org, that's D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C. I have a public figure page on Facebook and also on Instagram and and LinkedIn. And so I do regularly post my uh, interviews and uh, recorded presentations, upcoming events, media appearances, and and other uh, articles about wrongful conviction and even broader criminal justice reform. So if you want to keep up with me that way, definitely you can learn a lot more uh, about the issues that we've uh, that we've talked about. Very important to vote candidates into office of either political party that are in support of criminal justice reform, and to vote people out that are always in the way of of, of progress. And very important to serve on a to uh, serve on a jury if, if you're called rather than trying to get out of it. I mean, vote, those two things, I mean, jury duty and voting are two of the highest, um, you know, uh, civic uh, responsibilities that, that everybody had and rights that everybody has. I think that too many people uh, don't vote and too many people try to get out of uh, jury duty, but we really need people there. They're going to scrutinize the government's case. And if they don't prove it, then you vote not guilty. But if they do prove it, then you vote to convict. But many people that get out of it, the juries that are left are not really people that are scrutinizing things all that much. And I think that that's why some of the some of the wrongful convictions occur. Uh, for context, the uh, National Registry of Exonerations, which catalogs uh, exonerations across the U.S. Uh, from 1989 forward uh, currently lists 2,805 exonerations. And that's really the people that have uh, made it out. Uh, but, you know, the struggle against wrongful conviction and broader justice reform is really about accuracy and justice rather than uh, anti-law enforcement per se. Uh, I think that cops and prosecutors are essential people in our society. Um, so, uh, and I don't, I think, I think defunding the police is uh, an extreme solution. I mean, I, it's not a solution at all. If I call on 9-11, a 911, I, I want, I don't want to go on hold and I want, I want an officer to show up at, at the scene, but at the same time, if I do want better training and I definitely want accountability. So, you know, and positioning it that way, I mean, I have been able to get buy-in from, from some segments of law enforcement. So the last seven and a half years, I've co-taught the ethics class to do police cadets, and I've 
uh, given legal training sessions to uh, different district attorney groups uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I've spoken, I've served on uh, the Peace Guild Police Task Force Reform Group and I've spoken in front of groups of judges addressing various you know, wrongful conviction problems. So, you know, no need to broad, paint everybody with a broad brush. I think it's a mistake to do that. At the same time, uh, it's not a few bad apples. Uh, I think that that's not helpful to say that, that, that it's a few bad apples because why would there be so many exonerations? Why would we see the brutality that we do? Why would we see the unjustifiable deadly police force? Uh, you know, that, that's used if it was just a few. It's a lot more than that. At the same time, it isn't, it isn't uh, everybody either. Right, right. That's so such a good point to make. It was so nice to speak again today, Jeff. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for all that you do in the world and your beautiful presence. And thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fall in Love with Fitness. Whether you're already on your fitness journey or just getting started, we're in this together. Just head on over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review, and you'll be entered into the drawing to win my six-week transformation course. Then go to fallinlovewithfitness.com and get your free gift from me so you get back your energy and reinvigorate your life. Join me on the next episode, and remember, you are an inspiration.